All right. Well, this morning we are going to be in Luke 23, verses 26 through 38. This is the section of Luke's gospel that details the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. No doubt a familiar passage uh, to many of you. You can find uh, this uh, passage on in the Pew Bible and uh, page 884. So beginning in verse 26, we'll read through verse 38. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in the, in the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. I'm sorry, I'm just going to bring the text up here. <laughs> lamenting for him, but turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. But weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and on the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So I remember years back, I went to a movie theater to go see this this. A scandalous rated R, Christian rated R film, right? It was rated R for violence, and it was, of course, it was The Passion of the Christ, and it was this, this movie that was shockingly brutal in its depiction of, uh, of the murder of Jesus. And like many others who watched the movie, I would turn away and weep periodically and, at the brutality displayed on the screen against my Lord, and now, this year, uh, before the Hollywood strike uh, occurred, uh, Mel Gibson uh, announced that he was planning to make a sequel uh, to uh, the, 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 um, the Passion of the Christ, and in which it would depict the resurrection and, I guess, the subsequent events. And uh, now, I have to tell you, though, that I am not planning to see that, if it, if it even does, in the end, get made. Uh, for a couple of reasons. One is a primary, but I'm not going to spend time on it. And, uh, but, uh, but the second one is the, the reason I want to highlight here. But first, uh, I, since I saw The Passion of the Christ, I've come to uh, stronger convictions uh, about the application of the second commandment and the use of images and depictions of Christ. And so I have a very difficult time of, of uh, 
ever putting an image of Christ before me um, because, you know, if you go see the Passion of the Christ, you remember that. If you don't see Jesus, you see Jim Caviezel <laughs> dressed up as Jesus. And, uh, and don't forget that it's making the images of Christ is how we got our manger scene, which would have us to believe that Jesus is, uh, um, you know, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, uh, you know, porcelain-skinned baby apparently born, at, you know, at the Iowa State Fair. Uh, as opposed to a, a Middle Eastern Jewish uh, um, child. Uh, and so, um, but I want you to notice here, and, 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 but that's aside from that. If you want me to talk more about that, that's, that's fine. But, uh, but, aside, but that's not the issue I want to raise, because there is a problem that comes up with, uh, with works like the Passion of the Christ. And it's not the intention. The intention is fine. There's, there's no question of the, in, the good intentions behind it. Um, uh, but did you notice how detailed Luke was in describing the process of crucifixion. What do he say? He just said, they crucified him. He doesn't give you the details. Now, granted, his audience would have known. His immediate audience would have known that what goes into a crucifixion because they had seen him. Right? They had seen a crucifixion. They would know, but even then, he still doesn't highlight it. He still doesn't spill any other ink on it other than to say they crucified him. And so, uh, and, so and so this is what it gets into the issue uh, here because Luke doesn't dwell on it, but like the other Gospels, Luke, he puts a particular emphasis on the significance of Christ's death. He puts an emphasis on the rejection of Christ. And so, and so I highlight this because uh, one scholar wrote this about this passage in, in light of kind of things like the Passion of the Christ and, and different depictions of that is that we must be careful as believers not to make a melodrama of Jesus' sufferings. Because we can get so caught up in the physical trauma of what Jesus experienced, which was real and unjust, but we can get so caught up in the physical trauma of it all that we actually miss the significance of what he did. And we must be reminded that it was not for the physical sufferings that he would endure that Jesus sweat blood in the garden. It was, it was because he was about to become that which he had never become, a curse for his people. And for the first time, to have the smile of his father turned away as the wrath of God was poured out upon him. That is what he sweat blood for. That to Jesus was worse than any beating, any mocking, any flogging, or any nail pounded into his flesh. Was what he experienced when the wrath of his father was poured out upon him. And so we must be careful as we look at the scriptures to, to ask ourselves, what is it that the gospel writer is bringing out for us because they each have different focuses. Matthew's all about prophecy, right? It's all about prophecy. And so when he gets to this section, he's quoting prophets. He's letting you know there's fulfillment of prophecy going on here. And that's true, but that's not what Luke focuses on. When we read this passage, we see that while Jesus is suffering and going through this, he continues to interact with different groups of people. And in those interactions with those groups of people, what we will find is that he reveals different aspects of his work as our Redeemer. Specifically, his, his offices of prophet, priest, and king. And so this morning, we're going to consider 
this text and the crucifixion of Christ in light of those three offices. Because you'll notice that when Jesus was mourned, he spoke as a prophet. When he was crucified, he interceded for his crucifiers as priest. And then when he was mocked on the cross, he responded with silence as the king. And so we'll consider each one of those this morning. So first, when Jesus was mourned, he spoke as a prophet in verses 26 through 31. And we have this, what I just call the most curious episode here, right? We have a Jewish man named Simon who is from Cyrene, which is modern-day Libya, who he arrives, he walks into town. What's going on, y'all? And they go, here's a cross for you. Carry it. And follow that guy. Now, Romans could legally press anyone, any, anyone into service, and you, had to, and you had to do it. And they loved to press Jews into service because the Jews particularly hated doing that. I mean, imagine if you could get pulled over by, uh, by a cop or, or someone in the military, and they just said, here, uh, I don't care where you're going. You're gonna, you're gonna, we're going to pack our gear up into your car, and you're going to carry it over here. You're like, but I am going to the doctor. And they're like, I don't care. If you don't do what I say, you're going to prison, or we may kill you. <laughs> You're like, okay, I guess I'm not doing what I'm doing today, right? That's what they could do, and the Romans would do it, and that's what they do here. Now, condemned men normally would carry their own cross, uh, but not the whole cross. They would carry the cross beam, uh, to which their arms would later be affixed, either with ropes or, as in Jesus' case, with nails. And, uh, and now, Jesus' in, Jesus' inability to carry that is likely due to the beatings and the flogging that he received prior to this. And, and Simon, though, here presents to us a picture, a picture of what Jesus had said earlier, that if those were to follow him, they must take up their cross and follow him. Simon is, 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 is enacting what Jesus said, the picture of a disciple carrying the cross in the way of his master. And then we are told a great company of people were following Jesus who were mourning and lamenting Jesus. And there were, and this may seem kind of odd to you. They actually, it still exists in various cultures today, but they were kind of a, a group of professional mourners. And so there were people, like, and particularly a group of women, who would, who would actually kind of, if there was a Jewish man being condemned, uh, they would come and they would mourn the fact that one of God's people was, one of God's chosen nation was being condemned. Uh, was being killed. And so these are kind of professional mourners. And I don't mean that they're insincere, but they're coming in and they don't probably really don't really get what's going on here. They just think it's a Jewish man who's been condemned for whatever reason. And so they're coming in and doing their mourning thing. And that's, and these are local Jewish people, particularly Jewish women who are doing this. And this helps us to understand why Jesus responds the way that he does. Uh, because, uh, because uh, Jesus turns to them and he tells them, don't weep for me. But weep for yourselves. Well, that's an odd thing. Because you would think that if there's any time to weep for Jesus, it is now. It is when he is suffering the worst physical sufferings that he, that, uh, of his life, as his work as our Messiah, that we should weep for him. But he says to them, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Why? And, they, and, he's, and he, he basically says, because the words of Hosea chapter 10, verse 8, which he goes on to quote, 
about the rocks and mountains coming down. They're about to be fulfilled. And soon you're going to be crying for landslides to bury you alive because that would be preferable to what you're going through. That's ominous. Verse 30 is the language of divine judgment. It comes from the Old Testament. It comes from the prophets. We find similar language, almost, almost exactly the same language, in Revelation 6.16 that depicts the wicked, that depicts unbelievers crying out for a swift death because the wrath of God is upon them. And notice they don't repent. They don't want to repent. They just want to die. And now it's debated whether or not Jesus is directly prophesying about the coming judgment and destruction of Jerusalem, which is going to happen under Titus in A.D. 70. Uh, or is he making more of a, a larger uh, a statement regarding the final judgment of God? I tend to think it's a bit of both. Because uh, the siege of Jerusalem is going to be so bad that the Jewish historian Josephus records how, how at, le- at least one, and it was, it was likely multiple, but at least one woman who, who, who killed and cooked her own baby um, so that way she wouldn't starve to death. The men were coming and stealing her food every day to the point where she had nothing, to the point where she cooked her own child and ate it, and ate as much as she could before they came and took that from her. Awful. The worst. Absolutely the worst. And, uh, and so that's how bad the, the siege of Jerusalem got. But, and so given this, Jesus' words to the daughters of Jerusalem are apt. You know, Jesus' sufferings are going to come to an end. They're moment. But their sufferings are about to come. And, and, but also prophecies can give way to greater fulfillments. You know, for example, the, uh, the prophecy given to the prophet Isaiah, you know, behold, the virgin shall conceive and have a child. Well, right after that, his wife has a child. Okay? His wife that he married has a child. And so there's an initial fulfillment. But obviously the description of the child that is to be born of a virgin does not fulfill what Isaiah says there until you come to Christ. And so you have this greater ultimate fulfillment that comes. And likewise, Jesus is giving a, a, a prophecy that applies in the moment to AD 70, the destruction of Jerusalem, but does speak also to the larger judgment, the final judgment that will come, and hence that language in Revelation 6.16 that, that cites the very same thing. And then Jesus warns the people that if, if people do these things, if the Romans do these things when the wood is green, well, then what's going to happen when the wood is dry? Well, I mean, the, the, there's now the... Un, the initial meaning of the parable seems pretty clear. Dry wood burns, right? A lot better than green wood, right? We, we understand that. But what does that mean? And so he's saying, look, if this is what happens to the innocent right now, just imagine what's going to happen to the guilty. It's, it, it reminded me of 1 Peter chapter 4 where, he's, where Peter says, judgment begins, it is time for judgment to begin with the house of God. Judgment begins with the church. And if it begins with the people of God, then what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? What will become of those who disobey the gospel of God if God comes and he, and he brings discipline to his own people? So, so here, here is a warning. And what this highlights here is, is then, as, as now, Jesus wants our repentance more than our sympathy. Jesus wants our repentance more than our sympathy. You know, I, I, look, I hate... There's a part of me that hates these passages about Jesus' suffering, right? There's a part of me that emotionally 
dislikes it, and that's right. You should too. Any 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 Christian who is who who you know has a revulsion to the idea of the mistreatment of Christ as they read in the Gospels, that is a right affection. That is a right emotion to experience. But feeling sad for bad things that happen to Jesus is not the same as repentance. The prophetic warning that Jesus gives the people is that they ought to realize that his sufferings are going to come to an end, but that the condemnation and judgment of the wicked is more severe and it is eternal. Let the sadness and sympathy for Jesus' sufferings not confirm to someone that they are a good, nice, sensitive person, but rather drive us to our knees to repent of sin and especially sin for which he died. And we are reminded that the job of the prophet, think about the book of Jonah, right? Uh, the prophet goes, what was the purpose of his preaching judgment to the people of Nineveh? That they would repent. That's why he didn't want to go preach, you know, that, that he didn't want to preach the judgment. Why? Because they're going to repent, God, and I hate them. Prophets warn of judgment to bring those who will listen to repentance, faith, and new obedience. Again, this is why. This is why there's a limitation and a misguided good intention behind, uh, you know, things like the Passion of the Christ. Because many will watch it. Many will cry. And then having an emotional moment, they will go on with their godless lives. And they'll be like, well, I, I, you know, I'm good with God. I cried at the Passion of the Christ. Be like, man, I, I cry too, right? I was like, I'm gonna cry. I'm, uh, you know, you, you can get me real good, you know. And sometimes I watch cartoons with my kids, and they, you know, crying, little shed tears, you know, like, you know, it, like, you know, it, and now it may not shock you to have a Presbyterian pastor talk to you about like emotions aren't that great, right? But uh, <laughs> so not exactly known as the most emotional people, but uh, but no, we are emotional, but our emotions aren't the engine. They're not driving the train. Jesus explains that his sufferings, that, that his sufferings, uh, they, they don't merely, uh, they don't, mere, they are not there to make us feel bad, but they are meant to drive us to repentance. And if, and if we miss that, if we, if we just think us feeling bad, feeling emotional, and so we, oh, I had a good cry, and so I'm good now, then we've missed the point. But that's not the only point. So there's more to say. And so when, when Jesus mourned, he spoke as a prophet. Warning of coming judgment and urging repentance. And secondly, when he was crucified, Jesus interceded as priest in verses 32 to 34. And, and, and most obviously here, we see the Savior who is crucified. There are, we are told the two criminals were crucified with Jesus uh, at the place called the skull. We're specifically going to talk about that whole scene where Jesus is on the cross with the two criminals next week. But during, the, during large festivals like the Passover, which was the biggest festival, and, you would, and it would swell to you know, a, a well over 100,000 people in attendance, uh, the Roman authorities, that was the best time, in their view, to crucify people. So they would crucify the most people they could uh, that were due for crucifixion, um, uh, and they did it for a few reasons. One, it was, it was efficient. It was more efficient use of their soldiers' energy and time to do the most crucifixion at that time. And secondly, 
you know, in that world, there's no social media, right? So you have to do stuff where people are going to see it, and the most people are there for the religious festivals. So they would go for the Passover, and they would see lots of crucifixions because the Romans saying, you come and do your religious thing, and we'll let you do that, but do not mess with us because this is what happens. And so they would let people know. And so you would see the most crucifixions during the Passover season. And, and so there was one criminal to Jesus' right and to his left, and they crucified him. And while I criticize the tendency of us to focus only on the physical at the expense of the spiritual, uh, we would do well to understand what it means as a modern audience, modern reader of the text, what it means to be crucified. It means that Jesus had already been beaten multiple times and flogged. He was beaten and bloodied at this point. He was weakened. And then he was stripped naked. And he had his arms and feet nailed to a cross. And on the cross, while he was there up there, he would suffer sunburns, dehydration, heat exhaustion, Insects entering his open wounds that he could do nothing about. He would not be able to control his bodily functions. And all the while, people are poking him, prodding him, mocking him, until he would die of exhaustion, dehydration, infection, and asphyxia. To the point where they say in order to take a breath, you would have to you know, pull up on the, on the nails that were holding you to take a breath. Right. It is an unspeakably cruel form of death. And it is awful and it is right for believers to have tears well up in our eyes at the thought that our Lord Jesus would experience that and that he would go through that and that he would do it especially as being an innocent one, that he would go through it for our sake. It is a sign of love and affection for us. I want to be clear about that. But again, it is not what Luke focuses on. Take all of that in. All of that is true. But Luke highlights what Jesus says as he is crucified. As they are dividing up his garments by casting lots, you know, by rolling the dice, having a little little craps game, who gets Jesus' stuff. And, And normally, while they're being crucified, criminals would pour out all manner of vitriol and hatred against their executioners. They had heard it all. They were hardened from the bile and the insults that would come out of the mouths of the condemned. More pious criminals were expected and sometimes did say, may my death atone for my sins. That was what it was expected for the crucified to say. But what does Jesus say? He has no sin to confess. He has no sin to atone for. What does he say? He says, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. He intercedes for his Roman executioners because they truly don't know what they're doing. They have one job and they do it well. And here's another guy to crucify on the assembly line as far as the Romans are concerned. And yet Christ intercedes for them. And so he intercedes for them, and he intercedes for sinners like us. Jesus here acts like high priest for sinners. He intercedes, particularly for these ones who are ignorant 
of the most heinous of sins that they are committing, killing the Christ. And while this intercession is particularly aimed at his executioners, it points to Jesus' commitment to continually intercede for sinners. This is why we need more than simply a a visual picture of Jesus' crucifixion on the moving screen. We need to understand the significance of it. As my seminary professor liked to say, a picture is not worth a thousand words. A picture requires a thousand words to comprehend it, to explain it. It is not enough to see a man on the cross, but we need to hear why is he on that cross? What is he doing on that cross? Who is he? Because thousands were crucified. Why is this one special? But he is. We don't need to just feel bad about Jesus' sufferings. Because my guilty feelings about his suffering do not save me from sin. I wasn't alive to feel anything when Jesus was crucified. But Jesus' intercession was doing everything for me. Jesus intercedes for us before we ever knew anything about him, before we had heard the good news of the gospel, before we had committed our first sin. Jesus intercedes for you and I on the cross. He goes between us and the wrath of God. Indeed, he remains, he remains, even in his resurrection body, one who bears the wounds of his suffering. Why? Because he is a living intercession for us we just talked this sunday this in sunday school this morning uh, somebody asked a question about what is why is jesus called by peter in first peter chapter 2 the living stone because he is alive and he is the cornerstone of salvation and glory for his people he remains a living intercession as john tells us in his first letter that jesus is our advocate before the father and on account of him we are con- Daily forgiven of our sins. Whenever we go for confession. When he mourned, he spoke as prophet. When he was crucified, he interceded as priest. And third, when he was, when, when he was mocked as he was crucified. I'll typo on the slide there. When he was mocked, he was silent as king. Verses 35 to 38. And here we see how sinners speak better than they realize. The Jewish rulers can't resist but to mock Jesus, but in doing so, they end up actually declaring a whole lot of truth about him. I mean, hear what they're saying. He saved others. They're like, oh, you're admitting that. You're admitting that now. He saved others. Yeah, you bet he did. He saved others. He healed the sick, the lame, the blind, the deaf, the mute. He healed lepers of their diseases. He multiplied food. He turned water into wine. He calmed storms with a word. He even raised the dead to life. Of course, what they don't know is that even on the cross, he is still saving. On the cross, he's doing his most important miraculous work. On the cross, he is saving all who will trust in him, even those who mock him at this moment. 
The Roman soldiers uh, join in the fun and call upon Jesus, if he is the king, to save himself. And indeed, we are told the charge against him is nailed over his head. This is the king of the Jews. They cannot understand what Jesus is doing. But he is act, he's actually confirming everything that they're saying. He saved others. He is saving them still. Even as he hangs on the cross, all he is doing is confirming that he is the Christ of God, that he is the chosen one, because the prophecies about him said that he would do this. And he dies for being who he truly is. He dies for being exactly what is written above his head, the king of the Jews. And so Jesus suffers even silently as the king of kings, as our king. Here is the moment that the rest of the New Testament spends explaining. Here is the moment that the rest of the New Testament spends applying to us the significance of the death of Jesus on the cross for sinners. And Jesus here is the king promised of from the Old Testament, the son of David, come to establish his eternal rule and kingdom. Here is the king who humbles himself to save his people from death and judgment, who in his resurrection takes his throne in glory and rules continually over his people. In time, Christ will come and he will speak judgment as Revelation, verse 19, uh, Revelation chapter 19 depicts, de- depicts Jesus doing. But here, he is the king who suffers in silence. Which is very different than any other savior, any, kind of, any other kind of king that you might find out there. In uh, Homer's, uh, um, uh, he has the Iliad and uh, the ancient Greek uh, um, story of the Iliad. Well, right after the Iliad is the Odyssey. And he takes one of the characters and the Odyssey and Odysseus, he's trying to make his way home. And first he's got to escape off an island. It's about it going through, going back home. But, you know, and Odysseus is where you get the, the, the cyclops and the, and, the, um, and, and the sirens on the rocks that dash the, uh, dash the sailor. That's all from, 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 uh, from the Odyssey. And, uh, but Odysseus is a ruler. He's a king. And he's trying to make his way home. And when he gets home, though, he's got a bunch of guys that are trying to take his throne and, and so he comes in and he disguises himself as a hum, homeless man. He kind of humbles himself, as it were. And, uh, because if those men found him, they would kill him. They would take away his power and his wealth. But Odysseus is crafty. That's why the goddess Athena likes him. And so, so he lets them mistreat him in his own home. And, and until at the right moment, he signals his son to lock the doors of the hall. And then Athena empowers them, and they let the blood flow as they kill all their enemies. Bathes in the blood of his enemies and satisfies his vengeance upon these usurpers. It's the stuff of legend. It's the stuff of Hollywood. It's just not the stuff of the gospel. Because our king could stop all of it with a word. But he remains silent. That men may do their evil deeds. That God may use it to establish his salvation. Our redemption. He is not silent for his sake. He's silent for 
Matthew Henry writes on this, that the death of Christ was a thing peculiar. It was his victory and triumph over his enemies. It was our deliverance and the purchase of eternal life for us. He is on the cross as king because he is securing the kingdom and our access to the kingdom of God through his suffering. Again, I would expect a natural revulsion at, the, at witnessing the, the violent abuse of any person, let alone our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. But we are reminded again and again and again, and we see it far too often, emotions do not save us. Rather, we must see what Jesus is doing because, because everything he does is for his people. It is for us. We feel bad for Jesus, but he calls us to repent and believe the gospel. We turn away from the side of the cross, but Jesus intercedes for us before the Father. We bristle at the mockers as they go after Jesus, but he silently endures them as he secures his kingdom for us. Behold your Savior on the cross, but not for long. To be buried, but not for long. The true prophet, the great high priest, the king of kings, who, as Peter says, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like straying sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Jesus we have that true prophet, that true priest, and that true king. And Lord, you gave us emotions for a reason. Because emotions are right and good. Um, our emotions testify to the reality of, of, of the personality of God, that you are not some kind of uh, emotionless force, but that you express your love for your people, your anger and wrath towards sin, your compassion and mercy toward those who cannot save themselves. Father, we are grateful for divine emotions that are communicated to us in the scriptures. We are grateful for the emotions that pour forth from our hearts as we look upon our Savior with love. But Father, we pray we would not be ruled by them such that we would be distracted from what Luke is telling us in your word, what your spirit is telling us in your word, that, which is that our Savior desires our repentance more than our sympathy that we need his intercession for us, not only on the cross, but as a living intercession for us, that we may have assurance of faith and salvation in him alone as the true sacrifice and as the true priest, that we may have the assurance that he is the true king who suffers silently on the cross, but gloriously, gloriously rules now, in heaven over us. Father, we pray that we would go for here, shedding tears of sorrow for Christ's sufferings that he took for our sake on the cross, 
but also rejoicing in the work as mediator, as prophet, priest, and king, in perfection and glory. And may we be lost in tearful joy and wonder in the work of our Savior, who was sent by you, our Father, who worked as your blessed Son, and who is having all those glorious benefits applied to us by His Spirit. Father, may we leave from here worshiping and glorying in the wonder of Jesus Christ, such that when, our, when we have nothing to distract us, or when, we are, when, when our minds are, are turning, that they would turn to this, to the wonder of grace, the wonder of the gospel, the wonder of the king and the prophet and the priest on the cross who dies and suffers for his people. May we lift our hands in praise and follow you with new obedience that flows from faith and love. We pray this all in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Well, let's.